I don't mind telling you, Vince, here on Channel 11, KPLR, top international stars from throughout the world, and what a lineup this week. The incredible Hulk Hogan, Dr. David Schultz, Ivan Putsky, and many other top stars. It is going to be some kind of an hour indeed. From Television City in Hollywood. This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. Following roughly exhibition requires discretionary viewer participation. Greetings from Allentown Estate in front of a live studio audience. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 98 of Greetings from Allentown. I am your host, Peter Winson, and today will be something of a tribute to the late, great Mean Gene Okerlund, who passed away last week as I was putting together last week's show on Wednesday, and I, I didn't say anything about it at that time, but then I thought it would be a good idea to do a show that is something of a tribute to him, but not exactly like the Bobby Heenan one that I did way back in the archives back in September of 2017, where just kind of talked about Heenan's career the entire show. This one, I will be reviewing a show proper, and this happens to be the first show that Gene Oakland did in the WWF. And it's a rather fascinating one because it is WWF Wrestling at the Chase from St. Louis at the Chase Hotel in the ballroom there, taped December 27th, 1983, also known as The Day After for Bob Backlund, and it aired January 1, 1984. WWF was on the move into St. Louis. This is the first taping there, and it wasn't only the debut for Okerlund on this. We actually had a couple of other debuts, a return of somebody who would go on to have a huge impact in the 1980s, and by which, of course, I mean Jerry Valiant, (laughs) clearly. But more on the whole St. Louis thing and on Mean Gene Okerlund coming to the WWF, his life and career, in a little bit. But let me get in my plugs first. You can email the show, greetingsfromallentown at gmail.com, facebook.com slash greetingsfromallentown. Give me a follow on Twitter, at GF Allentown Pod. That is at GF Allentown Pod. And you may be listening to the show on the Pro Wrestling Only feed. More on Pro Wrestling Only and all you can find there coming up a little bit later on. Now, last week I had talked about my ballot for the Place to Be Nation GWWE Tag Team Project, which was 100 teams, and I managed to put it all together in time for the end of the balloting on December 31st. I had to submit it two days early because I was leaving for Indiana, of course. And I read off my rankings last week from, I think I read from 25 to 15, but I'm looking at it now and I think I may have actually screwed up the order of this somewhat. And I, I'm, because I, I had the Jumping Bomb Angels at number 16 which I believe is what I submitted. However, it appears that I may 
have mixed up two of the teams on here. And I'm just going to read off what I had for 15 through 11. And then the next couple of weeks, I'm going to read off the teams that I had for you know 10 to 6 and then 5 to 1, which will culminate in episode 100, which I'm not really making a big deal about. Because, well, I mean, it's just just 100 episodes. I mean, that's all that it is. I know it's a milestone for syndication for sitcoms or whatever. But anyway, uh, number 15, I had DIY. They impressed me enough in NXT for that one year that they, they get that high in the rankings. Number 14, Demolition, which I defend them being that low on the grounds that you take their run from the beginning of 87 to the middle of 1991 and the last nine months of it was really really poor and the first year of it was them really trying to find themselves so for a good chunk of that time they really did flounder which is why i couldn't have them in the top 10 number 13 11 through 13 are all very much linked together, as you'll see. Number 13, the Hardy Boys. Number 12, the Dudley Boys. And number 11, Edge and Christian, which I guess they win yet another one. Like all those TLC matches, Edge and Christian barely edge by the Hardys and the Dudleys. So I'll get to the top 10 starting next week. And at various points when I talk about tag teams, I'm probably going to reference where I rank them. And what I like about this project is it gives me a talking point for all of these tag teams going forward. So I'll have something additional to say about, oh, I don't know, the powers of pain, because they actually did make my list, which... I'm not sure that they're a team that would be listed on all ballots, but they are certainly well down the ballot for mine. There's uh, one team on here that made my top 30 that is actually on this show and another debut slash return for those guys. Bishop used to say to me, don't go out there and go mean Gene anymore. I'm tired of hearing it. So Bishop, this is for you. Mean! When I heard Oakland had passed, it was very sad. It was one of those things where I turn on my phone as the plane lands and I get three messages that all kind of mention that to me. But the other thing that I thought of is, oh God, Lance Storm has probably tweeted out a eulogy by now. So I made sure to actually check that out. So this is the Lance Storm eulogy corner. Not going to play any music underneath it or anything because Lance would want it that way. There's no sentimentality. But this one isn't that bad. Very sad news. I was a huge fan of Gene's during his WWF run and enjoyed working with him and getting to know him in WCW. Hashtag RIP Mean Gene. Okay, well, when it comes to Lance Storm uh, eulogies, that, that's a little bit better than most. So as I mentioned, this is the Gene Okerlund debut in the WWF after a lengthy career in the AWA spanning over a decade and he was without question a giant piece of the puzzle for the WWF in their expansion plans a lot of people were being brought in around this time with Hulk Hogan being the biggest piece because he's the one who's going to draw the money 
but Gene Okerlund is there to help draw the money by being the hype man, the pitch man. Okerlund is a lot like a John Stockton or Magic Johnson, great point guards of the 1980s who put their teammates in basketball in a position to succeed. He allowed the other people in the WWF to kind of slot into their proper place, which meant we got less of Vince McMahon, who was just all over the product in the early 1980s. And as he's trying to expand this company, this frees him up for other things and puts a little bit less pressure on him. You get less Pat Patterson on color commentary, which probably was not going to work if you're trying to bring this show fully national because while I liked Vince and Pat a lot as a duo because they're just two friends calling the action, I think you needed somebody maybe with a little bit more broadcasting credibility who could more effectively put things over using the English language. It, it was not perfect with Oakland because on color commentary in 1984, he was not good. And even he admitted that, I think, in interviews, is that putting him on championship and all-star wrestling for the first half of 1984 was something that didn't work out. But then you put him doing the interviews for the house shows, all those localized promos, event centers, stuff like that, WWF Magazine update segments. He was a salesman at a TV station and on radio prior to getting into wrestling in the AWA. And I think it was 1970, 71, or 72. I think I've seen all three of those at various points. So he's working in the AWA in a very similar role to what he would have in the WWF. And I would like to cover an AWA show. And I did think about that. But I thought that this show was much more interesting because of the whole St. Louis factor and it being the first thing that he actually did jumping to the WWF. He left the AWA at the end of 1983 rather suddenly, not unlike Hulk Hogan, not unlike Dr. D. David Schultz, two others that we will see on this very show. In fact, there was on YouTube not that long ago, it got pulled though, the AWA show from this very same day, or at least it was labeled January 1, 1984, that Gene Okerlund is hosting that show as well because it was already taped probably prior to Christmas. And this one, as I mentioned, was taped on December 27th. So there was not a whole lot of notice there, and the Ganyas felt a little bit betrayed, but quite frankly, I think Vern Ganya can take a shit in his hat. As the story goes, they had said to him, well, we took care of you for the last 12 years here. Okerlund points out that there's no counteroffer, and Greg Gagne gets all mad and tries to use reverse psychology, like, well, fine, if that offer is so great, why don't you just take it? And Okerlund is like, yeah, sure, I think I will. And that is how he left the AWA, where he got the nickname Mean Gene from Jesse Ventura. It was something that I guess Gene did not like, but since it got over and probably made him a hell of a lot of money, I, I guess he must have gotten over it at a certain point. Now, I've, I've covered a lot of his WWF time on this show, but what, 
what I liked about Jade was that he knew how to have fun without making everything seem buffoonish or cartoonish. You'd see it on those All-American Wrestling, not only the ones from 86, like the one I covered several episodes ago where he gets on the phone and makes like he's calling Ferdinand Marcos to talk about betting on the Slammies, but the later All-American Wrestlings with his pal Bobby Heenan basically doing these comedy bits. I also covered the one primetime wrestling that he hosted in 1991. I think that was episode 44. Go back and check that out in the archives because, again, that's him and Heenan a solid comedy duo if there ever was one and ordinarily he would be the straight man but he could be funny as well and he would actually host the last 12 or 13 episodes of tnt because vince mcmahon got the hell out of there because the 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 ratings were falling it's something i should go back and watch is check out that gene those gene okerland tnts to see if they are any good because i'm sure that he at least brought something to the table whether he was singing like he did on the wrestling album and on the pile driver album in top of the show i played gene doing tutti frutti and in fact when he was a young man there was a picture circulating with him i don't know if it was like an album cover or publicity shot but he had a band back in the day and gene oakland with a full head of hair is quite a sight to see because you you never think of him as ever actually having hair but another thing that i loved about gene oakland you know outside of all the entertainment and that is that he would actually leave the wwf if he got sick of vince's shit and that happened on more than one occasion i think it was 1988 where you don't see him for several months during the summertime where it's all the end of Craig DeGeorge, the beginning of Sean Mooney, and other people just kind of filling in the gaps. But eventually he would come back because they, I think they understood how important he was to the overall presentation. And when you think back, you know, he's such a huge part of it, and he makes it so much fun to rewatch. And he was good pretty much all the way through his WWF run. Now, as you get into WCW towards the end, there's the hotline shilling. But remember, think of how much money he made off that hotline. I would shill like crazy if I was making the kind of money that Oakland was making just off that one thing, which was well into the six figures. But from this point, January 1, 1984, all the way up to just after SummerSlam 1993, He's really, really good that entire time. And it almost kind of mirrors the golden age of wrestling that Oakland shows up, they have the expansion, and then as things really tail off for the WWF, it is right almost at the exact same time that Gene Oakland is gone. As fascinating as I find early 1984 WWF as they're trying to figure things out with the national expansion, this show is so incredibly interesting, even beyond all the debuts that are on just this one show. The WWF's foray into St. Louis and using the wrestling at the chase name, which had laid dormant for a few months, because you can say whatever you want, about vincent kennedy mcmahon he's a certainly a strange individual but he is not a stupid person he understood that the chase name meant something in the city of st louis 
and you'd see this in other places too. I look at this very similarly to how they entered Houston in 1987, just after WrestleMania 3, with Paul Bosch and Houston Wrestling. The way they were presenting the WWF, even after something as massive as WrestleMania 3, they were doing it in a way that was conducive with the way Houston Wrestling was always presented on television with Paul Bosch hosting and all of that and very much localized. Here, St. Louis, they're trying to do a similar thing in a very traditional wrestling market with the St. Louis Wrestling Club. Over the last few days, it's been very interesting to read and learn about St. Louis wrestling and its history, particularly as you get to this stage where the WWF enters and you have promotional battles and factions going on and alliances. It's, it's a very interesting story. And the chase, wrestling at the chase, was presented for decades, dating back to the 50s, and it ceased in September of 1983. And the man who was holding it all together during that period of time was Sam Muchnick, who was kind of the center of power for the National Wrestling Alliance, as he was the president of that organization from the 70s all the way up to his retirement January 1st, 1982 is when they held the retirement show for him. And he did hold it all together for all my feelings about the NWA being a cartel and anti-competitive and all of that. He was somebody who was effective in terms of getting them to accomplish their goals. And it was very hard to get, you know, two wrestling promoters to agree on anything. And he's able to unite them at least under this one banner. And he was very honest by all accounts and less self-interested than a lot of other wrestling promoters. I mean, looking in your direction, Fritz von Erich, for, for one. So he's kind of a benevolent sort of dictator of the NWA, where he was so well-respected, not only by other promoters, but also by the fans as well. And that's why you see NWA, WCW bring him out for Starcade 90 because he was just that well-respected. But he retires at the beginning of 1982, and I don't think it's a complete coincidence that everything kind of falls apart for the NWA shortly thereafter, within the next two to three years. So 1983, Wrestling at the Chase ends in September, and now the St. Louis territory itself is kind of breaking up into a little bit of factional warfare there still are st louis shows they're not being taped at the chase hotel or even in the ballroom which commonly wasn't used after the late 60s i don't think but the wwf filmed a couple of tv tapings including this one in the ballroom so the two factions are an alliance of <laughs> i think it's a team chrome dome or, <laughs> or something along those lines bob geigel out of Kansas City was allied with Vern Gagne, <laughs> of all people, and they were running shows down in this area. And in opposition to that was Larry Matisik, who also passed away fairly recently in the last couple of months. He was the right-hand man of Sam Muchnick for many years. And in the background of all this, Larry was kind of quietly allying himself with Vince McMahon, and that would pay off for him because once 
WWF establishes their presence in St. Louis. He's doing some of the local announcing from 84 to 86. WWF actually kind of stole the time slot on the channel KPLR from the Geigel Gagne faction, as I understand it. But apparently they were able to get some TV elsewhere. And the St. Louis territory itself would go under in the next couple of years, which is a very familiar story. But of course, they were actually bought by Jim Crockett because... (laughs) Apparently, he was always interested in buying distressed properties. That If he had just waited 20 minutes, they would have gone out of business on their own. So in case you're ever wondering why Crockett eventually ran out of money, that's one place where you can look. St. Louis also had some historic venues for wrestling, even beyond the chase. The Keel Auditorium and also the St. Louis Arena are both historic venues that are no longer standing. The Keel, I think, was torn down in 1994. I recall the old Pro Wrestling Illustrated magazines would always make a big deal of the Keel Auditorium. And I remember always scratching my head like, that's not where the St. Louis Blues play. Do they have like a second arena? And that pretty much was the case. Is The St. Louis Arena also hosted wrestling as well. It was known for a brief period of time from 77 to 83 as the checker dome because ralston purina the local dog food or pet food company had purchased the st louis blues out of almost civic obligation because it looked like the team might fold or move in the mid to late 70s when stuff like that was happening all the time not as much in the nhl but in the wha that that actually it's actually a funny story because that team was abandoned by Ralston Purina and surrendered to the league when they were not allowed to sell the team to interests in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And they just did not show up for the entry draft in 1983 because they had abandoned the team and there was no real plan for them. Although in fairness, they had traded away their top three or four picks. So it's not like they were forfeiting high picks by not showing up. And then, of course, there's the Cardinals, which at this point, 1984, there was the football team, which would eventually move to Arizona before the 1988 season, and the St. Louis Cardinals baseball team, which is less than two years off a World Series championship in 1982. I was trying to think, you know, I've been doing a lot of thinking about the city of St. Louis, probably more than I ever had before, and I can't think of a reason why I would ever go to St. Louis. I've I've driven through there when I was moving to Las Vegas. I mean, you're you're driving on I-70. You're going to go right through the heart of St. Louis. I I don't think I'd really have interest in going down there for a Blues game or a Cardinals game. I mean, I saw the Cardinals in Chicago last year. So I don't know. I mean, (laughs) it's kind of an interesting city in that way where I, I, I only really know a little bit but it has this rich wrestling history. So, I don't know. I've done enough vamping about the city of St. Louis and its wrestling history and Mean Gene, of course. So this is episode 98. So why don't I kick it off with a sports memory from 1998. Here comes the hook. Got him! 20 strikeouts! He ties the major league record! Unbelievable! 
Here's the thing about Kerry Wood's 20-strikeout game against the Astros from May of 1998 that kind of separates it from the two Roger Clemens 20K performances that had happened in the previous 12 years. Clemens did his against teams that would end up getting being bad enough to have the number one overall pick the following year. The 86 Mariners, which led directly to Ken Griffey Jr. being the first pick the next year. And then the Tigers in 96 who ended up, I think, drafting like Matt Anderson, so not not a good pick by them. I don't know if there was really anything to choose from, though. Point being, the lineup that Kerry Wood was facing, the 98 Astros, highest OPS plus of any lineup in the National League. They won 102 games. They made the playoffs. It's generally considered to be one of the greatest games ever pitched. It's certainly in the top five by any standard, although I think there's one coming next week in episode 99 that was just a smidge better than Kerry Wood on that day. I actually have a Kerry Wood 20K bobblehead doll that I got at Wrigley Field in 2014, and humorously, I say this because of you know it being Kerry Wood, I either me or my wife we accidentally knocked it off the sh- a shelf several years ago, and it fell and part of its arm broke off, and then we had to glue it back together. Which, if you know anything about Kerry Wood's career, having to actually glue his bobblehead's arm back on is just so incredibly appropriate. We start out with our new team of Gene Okerlund and, of course, Vince McMahon standing at ringside. And Vince, over the years, not even just 1984, but all the way to today, gets criticism for taking established things and then kind of tweaking the name slightly in some way. It's all for the purposes of his company being able to own the name going forward. So I guess I understand to a point. But as I said, he's not a stupid person. So he understood that the name of the wrestling program in St. Louis had value, had cachet. And then less than 10 seconds into the show, he immediately screws it up. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Wrestling from the Chase. Oh, Vince, it's wrestling at the chase, dum-dum. Maybe he's just nervous because he's got Gene Okerlund there to provide credibility to this whole thing. Here at ringside, this is Vince McMahon, along with the recognized voice of professional wrestling, Mr. Gene Okerlund. All right, at least now we're back on track. This is your announced team, for better or worse, for the next six months of WWF programming. But now we get to meet, I don't have a name for this person, but whoever is doing the ring announcing... (laughs) This taping in St. Louis is incredibly awkward. It's almost like he's its like a seventh-grade boy or something. This match is scheduled for one fall with a 15-minute time limit. Introducing first, from New York, New York, weighing 290 pounds, Jerry Valiant. And his opponent from Minneapolis, Minnesota, weighing in at 235 pounds, Dennis Stamp. But I'm not on the card. I'm not booked. I'm not booked. I'm not booked. I won't be. Oh, yes, you are, you coy little bastard. You're teaming up with the returning Jerry Valiant, the third Valiant brother who was filling in for Jimmy back in the day when Jimmy got a bad case of hepatitis. So he jumped into the mix. So technically, I guess, 
He's part of the Valiant Brothers team from back in the day. So obviously, as a long-term tag team champions, I rank them in my top 100 at number 42, which might be a little high, but I do like what I've seen of them, the limited amount from the late 70s. Dennis Stamp, I can't help but laugh. The I'm not booked. It's it's, it's something that's just going to define him forever. He passed away in 2017. But he was actually, uh, he made some appearances in St. Louis previous to this, but not to the level of Jerry Valiant, who was a mainstay in St. Louis for much of the 1970s before that WWF tag run, which I, I don't think he was there until 79. The year before this, in 1983, he was in WWA up in the Indianapolis area, teaming with Abdullah the Great. And when I thought to myself, do they mean Abdullah the Butcher? Like, oh no, you couldn't get any further from Abdullah the Butcher when you're talking about Abdullah the Great. Because we're talking about Jack Kruger. Now, if that name doesn't ring a bell, (laughs) this certainly will. He's that referee that you'd see on WWF shows in 87 and into 88 whose shirt's always untucked and he's always counts a little too loudly one two and he's the one who counted out Bam Bam Bigelow when he was standing on the apron in Wrestlemania 4 against the one man gang and they're facing the then WWF tag team champions the Soul Patrol Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson who of course famously not gotten a lot at all i had them at number 69 in my rankings and part of that owes to their lack of longevity as a team and ranking them at number 69 is not you know a play on atlas's usual proclivities it's actually in fact not at all in line with his proclivities for feet and all that my rankings were rather informal where I'd throw together the list and then I just kept looking at it and saying, no, that team is better than that team and I would kind of move them up. Why are they there? They were the champions, but as I said, they lacked longevity in that role. Yeah, they were the champions for five months. There's a lack of cohesiveness there. They hated each other. Certainly they had more success than another team that hated each other, the Young Stallions, which I can't even remember if I ended up ranking them at the end of the day. And they end up many spots behind the team they ended up losing to, which is Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch, who we're actually going to see later in the show as Adonis is returning, Murdoch is making his WWF debut. And the team that they beat for the Tag Team Championships, the Wild Samoans, I had at number 47. I'd love to see somebody piece together my entire ballot based on my anecdotes (laughs) Like random teams, like, oh yeah, I had Mr. Fuji and Professor Toro Tanaka at number 51, and I had Too Cool at number 54, which I can assure you that was not a play on Studio 54, or at least that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. So I love the angle that they use on the camera during the introductions, which is almost like a sky cam, not directly over the ring, but almost like. You're in one of those old school places like the Lowell Memorial Auditorium or the Manhattan Center where you have a balcony that's really close and it's like that camera is in the front row of that balcony. But then they ended up not using it at all for this show to film any of the actual wrestling. So 
I don't know. Maybe I need to see more from this taping to see if that's something that they might have revisited. So Stamp and Rocky Johnson start out. and <laughs> I don't know. I made a note that Rocky Johnson sounds like a very painful medical condition that for, for your genitalia. Something you might have to talk about discreetly with your doctor. Shoulder block, headlock takeover. And now when Tony Atlas gets in there, I noticed that there's something written on the back of his tights, and it takes me a second to realize that it says, Get down! <laughs> and I laughed for about a minute straight. Like Tony Atlas must really know Vince McMahon and what he likes, because here he is, this black man who doesn't necessarily want to shuck and jive, but he is going to write, Get down! on the back. <laughs> or maybe it was some sort of instruction. I, I don't know. Or uh, who, who knows what the logic behind that was. I just picture Tony Atlas taking his tights in. Yes, I would like you to write, get down. I, I would like the letters on the back of my trunks. Like, what? Get get down? Yeah, just put it on there, for God's sakes. So they work all over Dennis Stamp. And Valiant jumps in illegally, but actually gets nothing done. And then finally, a legal tag to bring Valiant into the match who he's not exactly the most dynamic looking guy in the world he kind of looks like a more out of shape Bobby Heenan <laughs> who of course we're not going to see in WWF for several months a couple of leapfrogs by Rocky Johnson and he follows it up with a head scissors and then tags out to Tony Atlas who engages in a test of strength now I don't understand why Valiant would go for this since Atlas one of the strongest guys around and it's over by the corner where Stamp, I don't know if he was working a bit here, but he hesitates to tag in after Atlas had dispatched Valiant in the test of strength. Another head scissors by Tony Atlas this time, and Stamp, is his head is trapped between Atlas's legs. He eventually gets it out. That's always a rather uncomfortable spot when you're watching it where the dude just has his legs between this this guy's thighs when all he is wearing is trunks yeah i'm not gonna really go any further than that but i mean you know you can figure it out i mean you know you know what it looks like it's it's almost as not quite as awkward as that missionary position pin that i think eddie gilbert did on that show from 1983 so some arm drags by atlas and i'm scratching my head i'm like i figured we'd see a little bit more power stuff out of him but okay jerry valiant has a mustache and actually he looks less like bobby heenan now that i think about it and more like the blonde version of paul bearer which is basically percival prinkle the third for those familiar with world class headbutt by atlas and valiant does the fallback tie in the tied in the ropes andre the giant spot and Stamp comes into the ring, and he gets Irish whipped into his partner, who is tied up. And Okerlund takes that opportunity to just throw out a song title that he probably has performed in a bar. Good golly, Miss Bolly! Pretty sure in all of wrestling history, Gene Okerlund would be the most fun guy to go to a karaoke bar with. But he's sort of a hype man on color commentary, which isn't exactly the best fit. And what you'd often hear in this broadcast is he'd switch off and do a little bit of play-by-play and Vince would quiet down and they'd kind of, you know, work it a little bit that way, which I think is better than a traditional Vince calls all the action and then Gene is supposed to provide color. Finally, a power move by Atlas with a press slam of 
Dennis Stamp, and the big splash finishes, so kind of an ultimate warrior sort of finish by Tony Atlas, although the way he would do his splash was a little weird, where he'd, like, contort his body and, like, you know, curl back, I guess maybe to make sure that his solid abs were hitting the guy. I, I don't know. But this match was 6 minutes and 15 seconds, which I feel like was a bit too long. I don't know if they're just showing respect for Jerry Valiant and Dennis Stamp or whatever it was, but you'd like to think that the tag team champions would put guys away a little bit quicker. But I think the excuse might be that you're trying to establish things to this brand new St. Louis audience that may not have had quick squash matches like this as much in the past. Jamie Sykes, Carter pressuring. It's to Jenkins, the Drew for the win! Gone! He did it! Bryce Drew did it! Falpo has won the game! A miracle! That was such a beautifully designed play by Valparaiso, which allowed them to take down number four seed Ole Miss in the first round of the 98 NCAA tournament. The inbound pass is kind of deflected over to a streaking Bryce Drew where he gets a good look to sink the three to win the game at the buzzer. If you're going to draw up a play where you have to go 75 feet and you're down two with two seconds to go, that's about as good as it gets, in my opinion. And I picked that as my college moment for 1998. Not sure why, although our next guy is probably wondering why I didn't pick the... 1998 National College Football Champion, University of Tennessee Volunteers, since that's the state which he hails from. Dr. D. David Schultz in his debut in the World Wrestling Federation, taking on Ken Jugan, a.k.a. Lord Zoltan, because he was a staple of the Western Pennsylvania independent wrestling scene. And I mentioned this when Jugan was on a Greetings from Allentown a long time ago, but it bears mentioning again because I find this just unbelievable, is that he was active, he had a match at some point in the last two years. He, he has a 2017 match on record. And Jugan also faced Andre the Giant on television in 1983. My point being, how many currently active wrestlers could there be who actually wrestled Andre the Giant on television. There there cannot be very many of them left at this point. I mean, maybe, I don't know, Brian Costello, is he still active? Who knows? As you know, I love Dr. D, David Schultz, because he's the real deal, and I just believe everything he does. He's very much like Bad News Brown in that way. He gives off a Steve Austin 1996 vibe, something that I covered fairly recently. But Schultz, I have trouble picturing him as a babyface because it sure as hell wasn't going to work during this time period. I have no issue with how he left the AWA when you consider on the other side of things they kept promoting his appearances and saying that he was going to be there all the way up to Christmas 1983 big show in St. Paul, Minnesota, and he had, when he had clearly left at that point. And I mean, what what is Greg Gagne going to hold Dr. D? Imagine like those two in a shoot fight. <laughs> that would be ugly. I mean, I guess Vern might have old man strength, but I'd be pretty confident in Dr. D, David Schultz, as a future bounty hunter and a damn good one from what I understand. And the appeal of Schultz and bringing him in is if you know what you're going to do with Hulk Hogan, his debut coming up in a little bit, 
you know him as a Hogan opponent from the AWA, so you could instantly plug him in to that challenger role. Plus, he's just a nasty dude and gives off a, a totally different vibe, I think, than a lot of the other heels that were in the WWF all through 1983. It certainly freshens things up because the year had been pretty stagnant. As I said, a, a proto Steve Austin, and I just, but I just can't picture him as a baby face at all, unless you drop him into 1998 via some sort of time machine. The genius of having Mean Gene Okerlund debut on this particular set of tapings is that he can provide actual insight into these other guys who are debuting at the same time. Well, as you know, Vince, I've had an opportunity to cover this man in matches both in the United States and Canada. Man with rough, tough tactics. He has tremendous strength and a lot of moves in the ring that I'm certain we're going to be seeing here momentarily. Oh, believe me, we are going to see a lot of those moves. I know I complained about the first match being really long for a squash match. Well, buckle up, because (laughs) the Dr. D experience is not going to be over in a minute and a half, I assure you. And Gene is right in the sense that, yeah, he's United States and Canada, because he had starred not only in Stampede Wrestling, but also in the Maritimes as well, where he had won championships in the late 70s i think there must be some sort of law in st louis wrestling where all matches must start off with a side headlock sequence because this is side headlock arama so far and then he follows it up schultz does with a little bit of mat wrestling so he's kind of looking like the other david schultz you know the one that got murdered by john dupont in 1996 at that fox catcher farm Dr. D, he's not the kind of guy who's just going to lock in a hold and just kind of stare at the fans because he's actually maintaining a dialogue with some of the ringside (laughs) fans who I I can only imagine that they're swapping toasted ravioli recipes or maybe giving Schultz an idea of where he could go look for the various delicacies in St. Louis. Toasted ravioli is always the first one that comes to mind. But then I'm reminded, oh yeah, St. Louis-style ribs are one of my favorite things to smoke on the grill. I haven't been doing those as often the last couple of years. I need to get back to that. Because good St. Louis ribs done well in like the summertime, there's nothing like it. But these guys who are sitting on the hard camera side are totally marking out for Dr. D, David Schultz. It's really bizarre to see heel fans, I guess outside of Philadelphia, in a WWF setting in late 83, early 84. Elbow drop by Schultz. And you feel like he could have put him away there, but instead he pulls up Jugan at the count of two because <laughs> Gene Okerlund said that he's got a lot of moves and he is determined to show off as many of them as possible, such as a vertical suplex. Drops another elbow, but Jugan sort of kicks out, but... They say that he was pulled up by Schultz, so just kind of maybe a miscommunication there. Who knows? Jugan, for the act of kicking out of the pinfall, is tossed to the floor. And it's a very interesting look because there's no mats or anything for the WWF at this time on the outside of the ring. But he lands on the carpet, which I don't think is a deep shag 
But, you know, the hotel carpets are always kind of ugly looking. I, I was staring at it in the hotel in Indiana, and I was like, they always have, like, the weirdest patterns. And I know it's to, you know, kind of hide spills that might happen for cleaning purposes. They're probably a hell of a lot cheaper than something that's a little bit more plain. That's probably the reason for I mean, I did not manage, you know, I did not major in hospitality management, which, by the way, is a major you can get at Boston University. I just th- thought I should throw that out there. And he snaps Jugan's throat on the top rope as he gets up on the apron trying to get back into the ring. A snap mare, and he goes for the pin but pulls him up at two, probably because he realizes how ridiculous it would be if the results said Dr. D. David Schultz defeated Ken Jukin in 321 via snap mare. That would be quite strange. I mean, this is his debut. He's got to get all of his shit in, as X-Pac is fond of saying. A big backbreaker where he lifts him up for a body slam and just drops him right on the knee. Jugan is in the rope, so he kind of has an excuse for not getting the pinfall right now. And then he hits the mass superstar style neckbreaker, which I was a little surprised by because that is a finisher of another high profile guy in the promotion. And he pulls Jugan up again at the count of two. And he picks Jugan up again and slams him into the corner and locks him into the tree of woe, which I believe would be Joey Lawrence's finishing hold if he had become a professional wrestler at any point in time. And Vince, now they're not really commenting on the brutality of this particular squash, but Vince has some advice for Ken Jugan. Jugan really having his problems, and perhaps here Jugan should just throw in the towel, Gene. Really, Vince? Throw in the towel? I mean, you just did that finish yesterday at Madison Square Garden. (laughs) He can't be doing that. I know it's St. Louis and New York, but come on, what is this, amateur hour? I mean, you have more finishes you can do, especially in an enhancement squash like this. Don't don't steal the finish of a a match where you changed your world title for the first time since Saturday Night Fever was in theaters. And now for the cherry on top of this Sunday of awesome that Dr. D is delivering. A tombstone pile driver. So now he's pissing off Magnificent Morocco by just taking his finisher as well. And that is what finally scores him the three count at the 7 minute and 14 second mark of this match. Now, let me ask you, who in the locker room is going to go up to Schultz and say, Hey, stop stealing my finisher, you pots. I mean, nobody's going to do that the 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 guys in the crowd are actually chanting Schultz Gene and Vince they have plausible deniabilities pretending like they're heckling him Gene thinks that the tombstone should be barred and it's actually kind of funny because on this particular move it reminded me very much of the Undertaker spiking Coco Beware at the 1990 Survivor Series very reminiscent of that and funny how it was both guys debuts but dr d would generally use a flying elbow off the second rope as his finisher it's just a shame that he was a man ahead of his time who might not have been able to play well with others because he also didn't get along with the piper and orndorff duo either when the three of them were paired up the first quarter of 1984. However, at the same time, Orndorff and 
<laughs> Dr. D. They did team up a few times. These are guys I would not want to meet in a back alley. And honestly, I probably should have ranked them instead of like, oh, I don't know, men on a mission, which I ranked at number 95. Craig, the old expression is once you have a playoff series, it really takes that full playoff series to build a rivalry and to build an intensity. And look out, Dale Hunter's in trouble now with Belanger. This is going to be a long game. You've got Fawcett at the bottom of the picture getting out his notebook, and he's writing down all the numbers on his card so he knows who's going to draw the penalties. Big Belanger and Hunter. You don't want Huntsy involved with that big fella. Hunter going back for more. Byron Defoe getting in the way. Look at this. Here comes Ollie Colton. Uh-oh. And it's going to be his buddy. He's going to have to grab somebody. Defoe and Colzig are now locked up. you got to be kidding. One was the best man at the other guy's wedding this summer. That Boston Bruins game against the Washington Capitals from November of 1998 was very early on from when I had season tickets. I think it was probably the fifth home game that I went to that season. And since we're reached 1998, it's probably going to be some of these direct memories. But I'm not going to go overboard with it. However, when there's a goalie fight in hockey, I'm going to be forced to discuss it because (laughs) they're either awesome or hilarious and quite often, (laughs) usually both. And in this case, there was a big line brawl out there. The goalies end up getting involved. But the funny thing is that the two of them were legitimately best friends and really were the best men at each other's weddings because they both came up in the Washington Capitol system. And on that play, with all the fights that were going on, there were 238 minutes in penalties called on just that one single play. All 12 guys on the ice, including the goalies, were thrown out of the game. So each team was left with nine forwards, four defensemen, and one goalie for the rest of the game, which led to a situation of defensemen who usually don't play 30 minutes playing 30 minutes Game ended up being won by the Bruins 5-4 to in overtime. Goal by former cap Jason Allison won the game. But Ray Bork played nearly 40 minutes in that game because they only had four defensemen and one of them was Darren Van Amp. So obviously you're going to play Ray Bork a lot more. And oh, by the way, while Brutus Beefcake might not have been on this flight to Chicago as he was the last time I went to see the Bruins play the Blackhawks out there, Ray Bork was on my flight to Chicago and I had to switch to go to South Bend. He was sitting in first class on the aisle, if you must know. So a little promo for the upcoming January 16th taping at the Coruscant Ballroom at the Chase Hotel It'd be the final one that they would do at the beginning of the year, but they would return in September and do one more taping at the ballroom. They would move to the Keel Auditorium for the February 10th taping. When something was lost there because it's obviously not nearly as intimate a venue, which is 9,900 to 1,000 seats in the Chase Hotel, and the Keel is, you know, well over 10,000. I forget the exact capacity. So it's too bad. It's a, a cool wrestling venue they're in here. That date's Monday night, January the 16th. You're going to be seeing live and in color Andre the French Giant out of Grenoble, France, 7 foot 5, 505 pounds. I'm forever interested in the weight that Andre the Giant was billed as prior to WrestleMania 3. Because a lot of the times at 497, 
saw that in the magazines. I know I've heard that, you know, him announced as such before matches. Usually they wouldn't go over 500, but here he's being billed at 505, which I have no idea whether that's accurate or not. But again, they're promoting Andre the French Giant because apparently, <laughs> apparently they're a phony. I like to think of they're they're phony Andres running around, and you have to differentiate like 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 the fake stings. Like, oh, I'm sorry, that's Andre the Czechoslovakian Giant. Please do not get confused by the two. Now our next match is pretty historic, so I'm going to set the table by reading an excerpt from The Squared Circle, Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling, the David Shoemaker book that came out about six years ago. And you can say whatever you want about David Shoemaker and his later writing. It was perfectly enjoyable, the book, for any fact errors that there might have been. I, 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 don't, I don't really care. It kind of was a compilation of his dead spin columns of the dead wrestler of the week and all that. And I, I enjoyed it at the very least, particularly because I learned this one little bit to set up this match. On December 27, 1983, at a taping in St. Louis, Missouri, a tubby middle-aged guy named Bill Dixon climbed into the ring. Dixon was a jobber and fully looked the part with his less-than-stylish goatee and moppy helmet of hair that stuck out so far from his head that it made him appear cartoonishly frightened to be there. That night, his fear could have been forgiven. His opponent was a statuesque, mahogany-tanned blonde named Hulk Hogan. This was the day that professional wrestling in its modern form began to take root. I don't think that's a particularly unfair statement to make. I mean, it's pretty bold to say this is exactly when an era started. But this is Hulk Hogan's first match in the WWF during his famous run from 1984 to 1992. I know technically this is 1983, but we're also not going to count 1993. Let's just pretend that none of that happened. Now, Hogan, I, I kind of want to back it up because the a, he's very associated with the AWA from 81 to 83. Becomes the most popular guy in the AWA after his turn as Thunderlips in Rocky Three. Challenges Nick Bockwinkle on numerous occasions to the point where they think that he's won the title at super sunday in april of 83 but it never happens because of you know money disputes with Vern Gagne and japan commitments it's a whole ball a political mess at the time but hogan was doing more than just the awa because he did kind of step away as i said he did go to japan as well but what you may not know is that he did shots in St. Louis in the late summer and in the fall of 1983 with several matches against Crusher Jerry Blackwell. There are three matches on record, but most interesting to me, and this is a match that I would like to see, is Hogan challenging Harley Race, the NWA champion, on October the 8th in St. Louis. So there was a little thing there with Hogan in St. Louis. I don't know if that's necessarily why they're debuting him here. I think it's just because the crowd happens to be familiar with him and they have the date available because he would be in Allentown to debut there when that taping takes place on January the 3rd, which would air on January the 7th, where he's just helping out Bob Backlund. There was also a he was on a original Starcade poster where he was going to team up with Wahoo in a tag team match, but that didn't came come to be 
is Hogan had left the AWA. His last match was around that November 10th to 15th period. I forget the exact date. And he had sent the telegram giving his notice, a telegram letter, out of whatever it was. The telegram makes it sound really nice and old-timey. Like, telegram, Vern. Yeah, Hogan's giving his notice. And that took place around November 24th. And he never works again there. But Vern, being the guy that he is, keeps promoting Hogan as being on the cards coming up, including Christmas night in St. Paul, Minneapolis, just like he did to Dr. D. David Schultz. And it was something that may have harmed Hogan's standing with the fans in Minneapolis that had been built up so greatly over the previous couple of years. And it would take a little bit of PR work. There was a article with a Hogan interview from the night he won the WWF title in New York, January of 84, that was in the sports section of a Minneapolis newspaper. And luckily, the word was able to get out that way that, you know, Hogan telling his side of the story and what had happened, and he wasn't trying to stiff the fans or whatever. But he's here. What more can I possibly say for the plans that they had for him? I mean... It's basically bringing in that final free agent to make everything work and bring it to the next level. Reggie Jackson signing with the New York Yankees in 1977, putting him over the top. They win the next two World Series. It's kind of just off the top of my head. It's not something I really wrote down, but as something that is comparable to Hogan and what he meant right away to the promotion interesting point about Hogan's entrance is he is not wearing a shirt of any kind highly unusual because even as he's making his early appearances in Allentown and at MSG on January 23rd he is wearing a Hulkamania shirt and it's a little bit more rudimentary with like the plain letters like like he got it lettered at the t-shirt store at the mall and he gets a nice reaction here but it's not totally insane because Hulk Hogan is not a St. Louis type of wrestler or or not the type of wrestler you would think is being incredibly over in St. Louis. This is the town of Harley Race. This is the town of Lou Thez. Hulk Hogan couldn't be any more different than those guys. So here he is facing poor Bill Dixon, one of the great footnotes in wrestling history. And he gets shoved into the corner and a shoulder block by Hogan. And, of course, we have our side headlock as legally mandated. And believe it or not, this is actually Dixon who has the side headlock on Hogan, who just kind of picks Dixon up and lays him on the top ropes. Kind of like what Tyler Breeze used to do back in NXT a few years ago. Now, if there's one thing you're going to say about Hulk Hogan, and I kind of want to put aside all the madness of the last few years with him. I thought it was very nice, the things that he said for the Gene Okerlund tribute on Raw on Monday. It's still obviously some mixed feelings seeing him. I don't want him to become a regular on the program going forward, but but let me just you know put that aside. He was a very smart professional wrestler in that, He knew how to work to whatever specific audience he was wrestling in front of. Because when Hogan would go to Japan, he wouldn't do the same things that he would do in the United States. He would work a style that was more for that crowd. 
working at the Boston Garden or MSG or Philly, he kind of would do his more traditional shtick because that is what that audience wanted and expected. Here in St. Louis, late 1983, you get the scientific version of Hogan, which is much closer to the Japan guy. So Hammerlock, and he takes Dixon down and does some arm work where he locks in a Fujiwara arm bar, which uh, to see Hulk Hogan doing it seems like something out of a video game where the moves got crossed, where why is this guy doing this move that he never does? But yes, Hogan is actually doing it. And the reason why is because the St. Louis wrestling fan is more, in, they're, they're looking for a more scientific style. So he's going to give that to them. Dixon actually sends Hogan to the turnbuckle when they both rise to their feet. And then eventually he blocks one and he follows with a pair of back elbows. And I, I was listening to Between the Sheets the other day, and somebody on there, I think it was Bo James, said, what is exactly is a front elbow? Well, that would pretty much be what Dusty Rhodes does, with where he's standing and does the elbow that way. That would be a front elbow. A back elbow, it is not referring to you know the back of your arm. It's referring to the fact that your back is facing the man as you make contact, or at least that's the way I take it. Big boot followed by a lariat and then Hogan with the slam to set up the leg drop. And those guys who were cheering for Dr. D earlier on, they also love Hulk Hogan as well. They're just very happy to be at wrestling (laughs) shortly after Christmas in 1983. So good to see the fans there very excited about everything. And Hogan, he's just so magnetic at that point in time in the early years I mean, take pre-WrestleMania 1, and I think a good part of that is because while he was famous, he hadn't been famous for that long, and when you're in the public eye and you're facing all kinds of scrutiny, immediately your guard is going to go up, and that would eventually happen for Hogan, and he would kind of become a little bit more cartoonish, which I think may have been his way of keeping his guard up with regard to his persona. But for that first year and a half, up until WrestleMania 1, he's very much unguarded and seems a lot more natural. And I I think that that helped to draw the people in. Not to say, obviously, that in the years following, he wasn't drawing the people in. It's just something that is very different, and you can sort of feel it when you're you're watching it and look i i made a snarky tweet about well hogan i can't wait to hear what he has to say about leo rush's wardrobe because all i can think of is the dress code thing from his restaurant but at the very least at least hogan didn't kill anybody i mean can we (laughs) i know this is very low standards here but he never killed anybody I don't know. I have some really complicated feelings about Hulk Hogan because he was such a big part of my childhood. And yes, I know he's done bad stuff more recently and you'd like to forgive him, but it's very hard to kind of forget that whole thing. So it's just something that I'm kind of negotiating in my wrestling watching. I should probably, you know, have a good therapy session and talk it over (laughs) with somebody if it's going to be that bad. And you know, where I could do that is at ProWrestlingOnly.com 
where I can explore other podcasts, match reviews, features, and retrospectives, reviews of wrestling books, including maybe Hogan's, although <laughs> there's a lot of bullshit in that book, video games, matches, playlists, wrestler appearances in non-wrestling TV shows and movies, and more. Join the conversation by signing up at the Pro Wrestling Only Forums, online for over a decade, with over 2,000 registered members in an archive of over 1.68 million threads. Message Board is a vibrant community. Whether you want to talk about a specific match in the Match Discussion Archive, take a deep dive in the Microscope form, or discuss more general topics from wrestling's past and present. Check all of that out and more at ProWrestlingOnly.com. The World Wrestling Federation and the most extraordinary 18-man battle royal in the history of St. Louis comes to Keele Auditorium Friday night, February the 10th. Tickets available at the box office and at Ticketmaster. They go on sale tomorrow. $30,000 to go to the winner of the Battle Royal. Top names already signed. The incredible Hulk Hogan, Rocky Johnson, Tony Atlas, and others to be added. A gigantic 18-man Battle Royal. $30,000 to the winner. That's going to be Friday, February the 10th. The winner of that Battle Royal would actually be Big John Studd, who, if I remember correctly, looking through the 1984 results, won a lot of those type Battle Royals. And there's a little story behind that match in the Andre the Giant book that came out several years ago, written by Michael Krugman. I kind of explained the way the end of the match went down was that Studd eliminated Hogan and Andre at pretty much the same time. Hogan and Andre then attacked after the match to kind of get their heat back and Stud accepted the, quote, $30,000 check in the middle of the ring. So now it is time for the promo segment, because in early 84, we don't have control centers, we don't have the event center or anything. It is just Mean Gene Oakland by the ring, which is good, because previously it was Vince, or in the case of championship wrestling, you'd see Pat Patterson there, but the angle alert siren would go off at that point if pat was doing the interviews at least in most cases and our first guest is rather interesting in that it is a tv executive barry baker the station manager of kplr 11 in st louis and listening to him i thought he was kind of a boring dude but he actually has more of a backstory in wrestling than you might think. Well, it's great for you to be here, and on behalf of KPLR-TV, I want to welcome Titan Sports and Eugene here to Wrestling in St. Louis, and I want you to know KPLR's commitment to bringing with Titan Sports the world-best wrestlers to St. Louis over the next few years, and we welcome you in this new association. Well, Barry, the very best of luck to you and your fine staff. We're looking forward to a very long relationship. It's a new era in professional wrestling for the great fans here in St. Louis. Sure is, and thanks very much for coming. I thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen... <laughs> you ain't kidding, it's a new era. And Barry Baker is the grandson of a Russian-Jewish immigrant and the son of a meat cutter. So I guess he's like the Dusty Rhodes of television executives. But his career would be pretty substantial in the world of television. Once he would build up KPLR in the mid-80s and kind of you know, with satellite trucks and that sort of thing to make it even more of a power in the Midwest, he would go on to form River City Broadcasting and then would become an executive at Sinclair well in the pre-ROH days and before it became kind of controversial for its right-wing point of view. And eventually he would become a president at the USA Network in 1999 but would only be there for about 16 months. But a very interesting 16 months indeed. And I looked into this and tried to figure out 
what <laughs> what he might have had to do with the WWF coming off the USA Network and going to Spike in 2000 when USA did not renew their deal. And all I could really find was one little blurb in an article that talked about some infighting amongst the various executives at Barry Diller's USA Network. Uh, he, apparently, he wasn't getting along with another president, uh, Stephen Brenner, who testified that USA's attempt to renew its contract with WWFE sparked much infighting at USA between he, Baker, Chow, and Diller. He also testified that he had not had the best of relationships with Baker. So I don't know about all that, but it appears that Baker is all for wrestling here in 1984. So I'm assuming that that probably would have carried over and that he was on the side of trying to keep WWF on the USA Network in 2000, as they had left in September of that year to go to Spike. You know something, Mean Gene? Every time I come to St. Louis, I get welcomed like a babe in New Orleans. And you know something? I came into St. Louis this time a couple days early to train. I mean, dude, I've had a psych on Mean Gene that even you wouldn't believe. But beyond that, now that I've got my first victory right here in the WWF, I got my sights set on the 18-man battle royal. I wanna, I'm so psyched up. If I was in the ring right now, I just might press that whole ring over my head. Press the whole ring and dump everybody out. Because, Mean Gene, I got one thing on my mind. I want that battle royal, Mean Gene. I want to be the winner. And then I want that world title shot if a WWF champion. Something I've trained for all my life. That is one hell of a power move, and I'm not talking about Hogan suggesting he's going to press the entire ring and dump everybody out that way. I'm talking about how he's asking for title shots when he's come in, beat Bill Dixon, and Backlund's body is still warm from the night before in his reign ending. So you think, okay, Backlund deserves a rematch. Well, they tell Hogan, go out there and start demanding title shots, and then eventually you know, popular opinion will swell to the point where we just have to give it to you. He is so great here because he, he sounds very much like a man of the people, in a way, where he's not sort of above us as the, quote, immortal Hulk Hogan. He's just somebody looking for a break, looking for an opportunity to get to the top of the mountain. You know, something I guess regular people can relate to more than kind of the fantastical stories that would come later on in his promos. You're darn right, me, Gene, and that puts me right at the top of the ladder. I am the number one contender all around the world, and now the WWF, the cream of the crop, the best talent. I, I want the battle royal in the world's heavyweight title, me, Gene. I thank you very much. I also think that everything was timed so perfectly with all of these people being brought in at the same time. You get Piper, who doesn't debut until the Allentown tapings the next week. But it's that when you change the calendar from one year to the other, people are ready and are expecting change. Not just like New Year's resolutions, but just even think now where WWE has that, well, this is a new era of Monday Night Raw. When do they do that? They do that on the first Raw of the calendar year. So it's something that people would expect changes to take place at this point in time. So if you're going to put it in place, better to do it now than some random you know, Saturday show in the middle of August. At least that's the way I feel about it. Next we have... Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch. So they're going to get in their promo before they have their first match. And I love the pairing of these two guys. 
something that I've grown to appreciate, not only with YouTube viewing of the 1984 WWF TVs that I was watching several years ago on YouTube before (laughs) all these shows were kind of taken down, but also the Tuesday Night Titans vignettes that they had where they were both down in Wakalaki, Texas, in Murdoch's hometown, but specifically the one in New- where they are walking through New York City with Mean Gene Oakland, Adrian Adonis's old neighborhood. That's certainly one of the better vignettes that I've ever seen on TNT. Now, I had spoken a few weeks ago about Godwin's Law, not not the one that you think of commonly, but the Godwins, the later hillbilly tag team, about how it's good to be a hillbilly in the WWF when Vince McMahon is around and engaged. Well, this is the original Godwins law with Adonis and Murdoch because, yes, we have a promo with a Hitler reference. I'll tell you something right now, Mr. Slim Whitman. We have the North-South connection, and we're after two jaybirds, two squirrels. Tony Remember, Dickie, we can find them if we just shake that tree. They'll fall right out. But just move out of the way because they're going to make us flat. They should have stopped us. But they should have stopped Hitler at Munich. They should have stopped the Donuts and Murdoch right here in this area. You know, uh, it never Nick fails. It never fails. Every time I come to St. Louis, Missouri, there's nothing happening. State of Missouri makes me sick. And every time I Adonis and Murdoch are so very different, but they're also kind of the same in that they're just big, tough dudes. Because Adonis, he's just the leather-wearing guy from the streets of New York City at this point. None of the effeminate stuff would really start until the tail end of 1985 and the gimmick was officially rolled out in the beginning of 1986. Next, we have Tony Atlas and Rocky Johnson, who do come in from the other side. The faces are coming in from one side, and the heels come in from the other. And Atlas and Johnson, Johnson's pretty bland, which is kind of interesting, because usually, you know, he's kind of doing the shucking and jiving thing that Tony Atlas would, you know, tend to have a problem with, despite the fact that he has get down on the back of his trunks, as I described earlier. So maybe there's some sort of internal conflict with Tony Atlas that's going on, and maybe some sort of internal demons. I don't know. Rocky's promo, like I said, not exactly the most exciting stuff in the world. But Tony, I'm listening to him, and maybe it's just knowing that these two guys didn't get along. But he just completely sounds like a dude who doesn't care for his tag team partner when talking about the upcoming Battle Royal. Well, the only thing I got to say is that uh, Rocky don't dare to talk, and there ain't no saints getting out here doing a whole lot of hooping and hollering, a whole lot of shouting about what everybody going to do because it all going to be proven in the ring. Ain't no use getting out here talking. Sometimes the differences between tag team partners like Adonis and Murdoch can end up making them great, or it can end up destroying the team. That's what happened with Johnson and Atlas. Big John Stud follows up here, and there's something very, very interesting about who he is with. You know, when you're six foot ten, and when you weigh 364 pounds, and you control the whole wrestling world, you think you had it all. But I made the best move, the smartest move in wrestling today, when I went out and I got myself a new manager right here, Magon Maganoff, and he is here to show me the way. Show me. I want you 
that's some interesting phrasing by Big John Studd that he'd show him the way. Because Mad Dog Manigoff's managerial career in the WWF was about as long as Peter Frampton's penis. Well, at least according to that groupie who was on the Howard Stern show several years ago. If if we could take what groupies say at face value, I mean, why would why would she lie? I don't know. He was also known as Jerry Graham Jr., Jerry Jaffe, worked primarily in WWA in Indianapolis. And trying to find out more info on this guy, it's baffling why he was used. But I look at him as sort of like... When a baseball team fires their manager in the middle of the season, you're going to name an interim manager. And sometimes the interim manager does get the job for the long term. But sometimes, you know, they're definitely not cut out. You want to look for somebody outside the organization. And they're only there for like two games, five games, something like that. That's Mad Dog Manigoff. He's the manager who's been brought in to manage the last two games of the season because the manager, the, the situation was so untenable that they had to fire the guy right away. But wow, is this guy just an interesting footnote in WWF history. And tickets to the Chase Ballroom, by the way, were $3 and $5. So if $5 in 1984, in January of 84, if you throw that in the inflation calculator, it comes out to $12.85 of purchasing power now. So they think how I bought tickets for the Raw in Boston coming up in March and that cost me, with fees, I think it was 26 or $27 to sit in level 9 of TD Garden. I'm like, wow, and sit in the Chase Ballroom and watch you know, this sort of, I don't want to say it's revolutionary stuff, but it's certainly, <laughs> if, if you were there and you could say you were there for an early 1984 WWF taping, that would certainly be an interesting conversation, at least... For me, it would be an interesting conversation piece. Peter! Peter Frampton! Oh, no! God, please, no! I'm too young to die! Are you sure you're not supposed to be at Keith Richards' house? All right. If you want to live, come with me! And bring your guitar, and bring that thing you used to make it go, wah, 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 wah. I think Mad Dog Manigoff's career in the WWF is shorter than just the song Do You Feel Like We Do, which I think is like 16 minutes and 32 seconds. He has less time on screen as this historical curiosity, and one of his charges, who we just heard from Big John Studd, is taking on Jimmy Jackson, not the Ohio State basketball star, but Jimmy Jackson, the wrestler, and I don't think it is the guy who... I guess I competed at the 1976 Olympics. Stud is never good in the ring, but he's perfectly fine as a heel, even if he was a prisoner of his size and took growth hormones to try and be bigger than Andre for whatever was going on in his head. But examining his career is interesting because you have the Andre feud, which literally lasted forever because they're natural pairings. So what do you do when Andre isn't around? Well, you pair him with Blackjack Mulligan. So really, he feuded with two guys for basically the entirety of his career. And the only exception I could think of is, oh yeah, he did not really a program with Hulk Hogan, but yeah, you put the big guy against the babyface champion. That makes sense also. Big John Stud versus the Machines encapsulates his entire career because you have Big Machine, which is Blackjack Mulligan under a mask, Giant Machine, Andre the Giant under a mask, and Super Machine, which is the masked superstar in a different mask 
when Big John Studd was once known as the mass superstar number two down in Mid-Atlantic. <laughs> it's really weird kind of finding something like that out. Plus, Andre didn't like Big John Studd. So here he goes his entire career in the ring with Andre, who you know could take liberties with him if he wanted to, and he certainly was by 1989. So the Big John Stud managerial you know, carousel of around this time is rather fascinating because when he came back in in 1983, he challenged Backlund for the title at Madison Square Garden. I, it was either MSG or the Spectrum, but it's a very interesting match to watch because it's Gorilla and Vince on commentary. And Vince is... I don't want to say he's healing it up, but he's very much anti-Backland in that one. So it's a, it's very interesting to the ear when you hear that, knowing what would happen later. But Blassie, who probably said, screw you, I'm not going to the St. Louis taping. <laughs> and that's why you have Mad Dog Manigoff, who is the interim manager here for this one show. And Roddy Piper would become John Studd's manager with the caveat of it was St. Louis only. And that would be a few more tapings from later in January into March. You wouldn't see Piper with Stud in Allentown or anywhere else. And then a few months go by and Bobby Heenan shows up in September. He ends up with Big John Stud because Jesse Ventura has the blood clots and the rest is history. Jackson tries to slam Stud from the beginning. They're not promoting the body slam challenge and Gene Oakley at one point wonders if that is still going on well of course it is because it literally never ended it was just a gimmick you could carry over from territory to territory and then just never pay out screw over the baby face or whatever that fails and then stud raises his arm to allow jackson to try for a wrist lock and that fails as well so we're just going to do all test of strength sort of stuff back elbow shoulder block and a slam and I, I will say one good thing about Jimmy Jackson is that he's got the striped socks above the boot, which I'm always a fan of. Reverse body vice backbreaker finishes. That's kind of your generic finish for a big dude like that. Jesse Ventura would take that later in 1984. I, I mean, I don't. if you had asked me what Big John Stud's finisher was, I have no freaking idea because even even Andre, I mean, he would often do like a sit-down splash, but, you know, these big guys, they don't necessarily have to have a finisher. You just kind of squash a guy in a couple of minutes, and that's it. it Mad Dog Manigoff, I, I, I can't stop talking about this guy. He's like the key. If you recall, Vic Grimes shows up in the WWF as key in 1999, does one show, a shotgun Saturday night, where he's actually on air. So this is the key of the 1980s. One freaking taping. Meanwhile, Okerlund, I don't know if he's trying to ingratiate himself with Vince McMahon, but for whatever reason, on this Wrestling at the Chase show, he's already changing the name of the program, too. No way out for Jackson. Big John Studd, your winner, right here on the Superstars of Wrestling. This is not to be confused with the Superstars of Wrestling that would start airing in September of 1986, nor the Superstars of Wrestling, the Joe Pettacino show that also started airing in 1986, nor should it be confused with the Superstars of Wrestling that the WWF would come out with in 1984 that served as a sort of D-show and would be replaced by Wrestling Spotlight in 
guess. Yeah, 1986. Now, Robert Smith is back from Minnesota. And he is throwing it back to Cunningham, the old flea picker. And open is Randy Moss. And in the end zone is a Minnesota touchdown. Yep, you know they were going to do it. The fans knew they were going to do it. The Dallas Cowboys knew they were going to do it. You knew they were going to do it early. Here's Cunningham back to throw it and going deep. And he's got Moss. And there's the flag on the play. And Moss has caught the pass and is in the end zone anyway. Touchdown. Just throw it as far as you can. This guy is amazing. Randy Moss is amazing. Randall Cunningham is amazing. Cowboys showing blitz. Minnesota. Randy Moss breaks a tackle, and Randy Moss races down the sideline, and Randy Moss just outruns everybody into the end zone. He is incredible. I think he might uh, be enjoying some turkey. Yeah. He better better like a turkey leg. For me, there's nothing quite like when an athlete announces his arrival in a big nationally televised game, and so it was for Randy Moss on Thanksgiving 1998. His rookie season when he was just a phenomenon. Three catches, 163 yards, all three for touchdowns, all three longer than 50 yards. He also scored a two-point conversion as well. So every time he touched the ball, he scored points in the Minnesota 46-36. to Yes, a high-score game. Sounds like a game from a more modern era. Poor, poor Troy Aikman throws for 455 yards at a loss, and Emmitt Smith runs for three touchdowns although he didn't have that many yards <laughs> no nobody cares about it i could watch randy moss highlights on youtube all day long and i probably should go back to doing that because our next bout is the polish power ivan putski taking on bill Berger. And I'm thinking about anything I could talk about other than this Ivan Putski match, such as what's the best burger I ever had? And I kind of nailed it down to the Roots Chris Steakhouse uh, Auxiliary Bar in Grand Rapids, Michigan in February of 2015. But that, that's a long list for me. I also like P&L Burger up in Toronto. May they rest in peace. So anything to avoid talking about. Putsky. Maybe I should just play a bunch of Randy Moss highlights from the 2007 season. That is a disgusting act by Randy Moss. All right, fine, Joe Buck. I'll talk about Ivan Putsky, who doesn't really get much of a reaction here in St. Louis. There is a sizable Polish population in the city. It's not quite Chicago, but still. I think part of it might be we just saw Hulk Hogan, who is a superior strongman in just about every way, similar but less ethnic-based than Putski is, who seems like a relic from a former era when you're trying to appeal to specific parts of the fan base. And immediately we get the test of strength where he breaks the wrist lock of Berger. So Vince takes this opportunity to spin a good old-fashioned yarn about Putski. Putski, one of the strongest men in professional wrestling. Very, very powerful man. Extraordinary power. I recall when Putski first came to this country back in 1971, carrying, I might add, considerably more weight, but now toning up that physique, the man looks absolutely fantastic. Yes, indeed. At one time, Putski on his frame carried very close to 300 pounds. 
Sounds to me like a Charles Atlas slash Jack LaLanne gimmick he's got going. I wonder if Putsky ever had sand kicked in his face at the beach like the old st- the old Charles Atlas story. He did win two awards from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter in 1984. Least favorite wrestler and worst wrestler, which, okay, fine. I'm not going to take issue with because it's just a matter of opinion by the fan base, and it's not as if he could do a whole lot in the ring. In spite of all that, Putsky's team with Tito Santana made my Place Be Nation Top 100 Tag Team list at number 96, because the if you hold the title, you're going to get treatment onto the list, and they lasted for much of 1979 into 1980, and also because Tito is there, and looking at my list, if you had a team with one guy who is a really good tag team worker who was across several different tag teams. It's also going to get special treatment by me as well. I mean, look, (laughs) Owen Hart is another example of that. And then, of course, the top example, which is Cesaro. Berger takes a powder outside the ring before gearing up for their version of side headlock-a-palooza. And there's no clean break by Berger, who gets it a little bit of offense. So Putsky gets all pissed off and throws him to the floor. And this is where you get to see a neat little thing in the ballroom, which is the border of the dance floor meeting the carpet. So he, he's like on the corner of the dance floor. So you can see him kind of laid out on both of them. Putsky pounds on the upper back and the Polish hammer finishes. Thank God this is over quick. I mean, these were good times, I guess, for the Poles. I mean, Lech Walesa won the Nobel Peace Prize towards the end of 1983. You know, solidarity, big deal in Poland all through the 1980s. So, Ivan Potsky, not your most famous Pole that there ever was. However, the country of Poland did not win any medals at the 1984 Winter Olympics, and they were part of the boycott of the Summer Games in Los Angeles later that year. Why, yes, Michael, I do want to be starting something, and it is the beautiful team of Adrian Adonis and Dick Murdoch, the North-South Connection, who came in ranked number 30 on my tag team list, and as I kind of reevaluated, I wish maybe I had pushed them a little bit higher. They are taking on the team of Kevin Collins, not the NHL linesman who retired several years ago, and me and my friend Steve, we wish and pray that every NHL linesman could be more like Kevin Collins. Anytime there's a bad icing call, uh, Kevin Collins would be spinning in his grave if he was actually dead. He is teamed with Terry Daniels, who is not yet a private in Sergeant Slaughter's Cobra Corps, so he'd make an impact later in 1984. Uh, let's let's call him public Terry Daniels at this point. And Adonis and Murdoch, they get off to a slow start because Murdoch's gr- the graphic with his name is spelled with a K at the end, apparently. Uh, well, Murdoch had some associations with some places that had uh, Ks at the beginning of their name, maybe three of them 
in a row, something like that. Made it interesting that Adonis and Murdoch, Murdoch is going against a team called the Soul Patrol and then win the tag team titles from them. Apparently there was some sort of incident between him and Rocky Johnson, but it's one of those hearsay things. And Murdoch died in 1996, so I'll never know what his side of the story is. Start out with arm drags by Terry Daniels, public Terry Daniels, excuse me, on Adonis. I'm not entirely sure having seen some Terry Daniels, what exactly they saw in him, other than maybe as a prop for Sergeant Slaughter. I mean, maybe they wanted to have somebody truly pathetic, but if you wanted to have the Cobra Corps actually be something other than, I don't know, the gang from Stripes, you would have wanted to have some talented wrestlers in there. And he is whipped into Murdoch's leg, so kind of a variation on the heart, old Heart Foundation transition move, but whereas they did it on purpose, not like they were cheating to, to do that on a regular Irish whip. There's some nice double teamwork by Adonis and Murdoch. And they were so good at that, just watching all the weekly TVs in 84. It, it was just a joy to watch and a bit of a revelation because it's not a team that's played up in the WWE canon as it were, because Murdoch was hardly ever there, and Adonis is much more remembered for the effeminate gimmick that didn't start until after this team had disbanded. Daniels gets tossed into a chair on the outside, and they are just brutalizing him. Elbows by Murdoch, knee drops to the face once they're back inside, and a huge back body drop on Daniels, a slam, a double elbow, inverted atomic drop. They are just beating the crap out of public Terry Daniels. So they Irish whip him to the corner where Collins is, who tags into the match. And luckily, they did not get called for icing. Although, now that I think about it, back then, you could change lines after an icing. So that rule wouldn't have applied in that case. And he fares no better. And this is just an incredible squash along the lines of the Dr. D. David Schultz one. Knee drop decapitation. Think of the demolition finishing move, but instead of the elbow that Axe would drop off the second rope, it's a knee drop. Another double back elbow. And then finally, they they say enough is enough. And the sleeper by Adrian Adonis. Not called Goodnight Irene because he is not in that gimmick yet. Daniels tries to make the save, but Murdoch intercepts him, and that is how this bout ends. These guys just absolutely rule the world. They are Tully Blanchard and Arn Anderson, but for the 1984-85 WWF set, they win the titles in May off the Soul Patrol, and they'd hold them for many, many months and would not lose them until January of 1985 in Hartford. I love those vignettes, as I said, from TNT, where they go to... New York City and also down to Texas. This match to me was just four minutes and five seconds of tag team kick ass paradise. Next week, ladies and gentlemen, Scott Adonis, we shall have with his gene from Osaka, Japan, Mr. Fuji, along with the likes of Mil Mascaris from Mexico City, an extraordinary wrestler. Well, geez, at least I don't have to talk about that one. Although, Fuji certainly had his charms, usually when paired up with another guy like a Tiger Chung Lee or a Masa Saito. But yes, I don't have to discuss that. That does it for Wrestling at the Chase, WWF style, from January 1, 1984, Gene Oakland's first show with the WWF. And I would be remiss, before we wrap this up, from Gateway City, to thank Sir Richard Land for his help 
on this episode. Without him, it would not have been possible. And I call him Sir Richard Land because I don't think he's been knighted, but quite frankly, he should be. I go to my podcast plugs. I want to remind you to subscribe to the Pro Wrestling Only feed where you can catch all the other great shows on this network and leave a review on iTunes. Be a dear for both Pro Wrestling Only and for my own feed. Greetings from Allentown. <laughs> leave five stars. That is definitely appreciated because it provides what is known as social proof that you are enjoying and listening to this podcast and you're not just some Russian bot up to no good. So the my podcast plugs, and I'm laughing because I have a story about last week's plugs that I did for the wrestling podcast about nothing. I said what was on the show, and it bore no reality to what was on, because apparently I was looking at a show from about seven months ago, and, and I thought it was this week. So good job by me there. Mike Crockett reached out to me. It was like, what? what the hell was that? But <laughs> I had the idea maybe to just make up what is on the wrestling podcast about nothing every week and just keep doing it that way. Like this week, Brian Malonis takes the Wade Boggs challenge on his way to an ROH show, trying to drink 60 beers to get into character. <laughs> Remember the bouncers? <laughs> Something like that. But actually, on their show this week, they, they're starting to watch old territory wrestling. And they're going to go through one territory at a time until they've seen one episode from all of them. So naturally, they started out with the New York Territory, the Worldwide Wrestling Federation, from May of 1977. I think I know the episode it was. It's right after Graham wins the championship, and I think it's on YouTube. So they go over that on the Wrestling Podcast About Nothing with Mike Crockett and Brian Malonis of Ring of Honor this week. On the Our Vantage Point podcast with Joe Morata and Michael Quinn, they have a discussion, a lengthy, passionate discussion about enhancement talent matches, which, once again, just like the Saturday Night's Main Event one from last week's show, right in Mr. Pete's wheelhouse. And the Sportscasters with my Adams Division podcast partner, Steve Bennett, Season 9 is up and running and coming later this week. I think it'll drop on Friday. I think that's what he told me. Jimmy Trainer of Sports Illustrated will be on the show and there are a lot of great guests lined up for the program going forward not me but people you've actually heard of <laughs> as Steve once again is tapped into the impressive Rolodex for guests so no YouTube comment theater this week because this is not a YouTube video however it is January and you know what that means it is time for another edition of Vinny Vegas Corner NFL Divisional Playoff Edition. I was a rather lucky 2-2 two and two last week because I got my pick in when the Seahawks-Cowboys line was 1.5. And, and since I had the Cowboys, they just barely covered Seattle had to keep going for two because they didn't have a kicker because Janikowski was injured and they didn't trust the drop kick guy to put through the uprights from 33 yards. So, enough with Seattle. On to the divisional round. We start with the Indianapolis Colts going into Kansas City. Line is five and a half. And 
there's a lot of talk about how Kansas City is cursed at home. And it, it's got nothing to do with Jovan Belcher killing himself in the parking lot there a couple years ago. It it's just goes all the way back to when Joe Montana was on the Chiefs, that they have lost home games in the most epic ways, which is strange because they have one of the better home field advantages in the NFL. I can attest it is certainly one of the loudest stadiums because I was there on that Monday night in 2014 when... They had the successful attempt to break the world's loudest crowd record or something like that. It was then subsequently broken by Seattle shortly thereafter, so there was a little rivalry. I like the Colts getting five and a half points here, and there are a few reasons why. I think all they need to get in this game is a couple stops on D. Just force two or three punts, force a turnover or two. Easy for me to say. And take care of the ball on their end because I don't think Kansas City is going to be able to stop them. It's not like the Colts have anybody like Marshall Falk or Edger and James. Those guys aren't walking through that door. We got old man Frank Gore, one of the top five rushers in NFL history by yardage. And I think that offensive line is going to control the line of scrimmage because why would you believe in that Kansas City defensive line when they've been so bad the entire year? This is when defense really starts to matter. Yeah, you can win a Super Bowl by outscoring teams, but honestly, I just don't see how the... uh, Even if the Chiefs get by here, and I wouldn't be shocked if not only they win, they cover the five and a half. There's just so much history there. And with the Colts, their advantages on the line of scrimmage, I like them getting five and a half points. Saturday night. The Los Angeles Rams are hosting the Dallas Cowboys in the L.A. Coliseum. Second straight year for an NFL playoff game in that venue. I think the Rams learned some lessons last year in that loss to Atlanta in the wild card round and are ready to take that next step. Dallas, I don't think, is particularly that good. Yeah, they're solid on defense. However, you know, having played last week, that was a pretty hard-fought victory over the Seahawks. And I think people have forgotten one thing about the Rams. is They were beating the holy hell out of teams for the first 10 weeks of the season. And they were not screwing around. And, that, yeah, they had some dogs since then. With They lost a game to the Eagles, a very motivated Eagles team that was playing for its life. They lost, you know, they beat Kansas City at home. Which, which is a good win, but then they lost to New Orleans, gave up a lot of points in the Superdome. That could be an excuse, excused. They lost to the Bears in Chicago, a night game, cold weather, the Bears' defense, all that. So I think that they'll be back on track, and I see them putting up 30 in this game. So Rams minus 7 in that one. Sunday afternoon, a rare spot for the New England Patriots in the divisional round. Usually they're in that Saturday night game, or at the very least in that Saturday afternoon game as they were against Kansas City a few years ago. Patriots giving four points to the visiting Los Angeles Chargers. A lot of people still calling them San Diego. I I don't quite understand. Let's accept reality, people, that they moved. I I know it's really not Los Angeles. They're Carson, California. Interesting thing about the Chargers is they have not lost a game out of the greater Los Angeles area this year. They were 7-1 on the road, and their only road loss was at the Rams. So that's... 
kind of an interesting thing. Uh, I, I think it's more coincidence than anything else, you know, function of their schedule. They did pull out that Kansas City game with the two-point conversion at the end, overcoming the two-touchdown deficit. But I still like the Patriots giving four points in this game because I feel like they've been holding something back in this last part of the season. Yeah, they beat the hell out of the Jets, but there, there were a lot of screwy things going on in that game. This this could this is going to definitely be a cold-weather game. There's rumors of snow. I hope that doesn't happen because I'll be coming back from New York, and uh, I don't want to be driving in snow at all. I went, If the line was higher, if it was six points, I might give the Chargers a bit more of a look here. But four points is a fair enough point price for the Patriots. They often win these divisional games by 10 to 20 points. So I'll take Patriots minus four in that one. And then finally, the Philadelphia Eagles, against all odds, visit the New Orleans Saints Sunday afternoon, 4.40 p.m. Eastern. And the Saints... Well, they did impress at times, and they, they also beat the holy hell out of teams at various points during the season. I remember that Cincinnati game that was about 51-14, to 14, where it felt like they were scoring a touchdown every 30 seconds. I'm not a fan of teams that take their foot off the gas as much as New Orleans did. Yes, they were playing hard in that Pittsburgh game, winning 31-28 to 28 back in Week 16. But then this game against Carolina... Really, the fact that none of those guys played. You have the bye week the next week. So basically now these guys are going to be sitting for two straight weeks, almost like a college team going into a bowl game. And sometimes, you know, things aren't quite as sharp. Now, of course, New Orleans is probably going to score, you know, three plays on their first possession just to prove me wrong. But there's a comp for this game because the Eagles went into New Orleans earlier in the season and lost 48-7. to And I thought, boy, that sounds familiar, a team losing by 40-plus points and then having to visit a team in the divisional round. Yes, the 2010 New York Jets lost the Patriots 45-3 to on Monday Night Football and then returned in the divisional round and beat the Patriots 28-21. to And it probably wasn't as close as it sounds from that score. I'm going to take the Eagles plus eight here because they always find a way to screw me. I could totally see a situation on Sunday where the Patriots lose by 10 to the Chargers and I'm sitting there comatose watching the second game and the Eagles are up by 10 on the Saints. Man, come on. I had a rough night and I hate the fucking Eagles. Yeah, I'm with the dude on that, but... Despite all of my hard feelings towards that franchise, I'm still going to pick them. And yeah, I might be accused of emotional hedging, where if they end up winning or covering, then I can feel good because my pick was correct. And if they lose, I'll feel okay because the dragon has finally been slayed. So yeah, Eagles plus eight. That's where I'm going with that. So to recap, Colts plus five and a half, Rams minus seven, Patriots minus four, and Eagles plus eight for Vinny Vegas Corner. Once again, I do not know what show I'll be doing next week, but rest assured there'll be something from the queue, although there is an account that has been posting a bunch of WCW to YouTube, so hopefully that stays alive there. Maybe I should stop talking now and go pull a bunch of it there so I I have even more for my strategic reserve of shows where if YouTube gets totally cracked down upon, 
I can rely on a sustainable source. Like I'm stockpiling canned goods in the basement, something like that. So anyway, thank you so much for listening once again this week. And do tune in next Thursday for another exciting episode of Greetings from Allentown.